So back in 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, they climbed a 29,035-foot peak to get to the top of Mount Everest. And since then, thousands of people, because of the lifting of all the restrictions that Nepal had set upon this mountain, they've been lifted and thousands and thousands of people have climbed the legendary mountain. In fact, to date, more than 4,000 people have reached the summit on top of that mountain, the world's tallest. A lot of these people, they've spent up to $60,000 just to try this for the experience of being able to summit a mountain that many people would like to conquer. You know, one unfortunate result of this commercial influx of all these people has been the decline of the traditional moral code of mountaineering. In the rush to make it to the top, amateurs who've spent a fortune to be able to do so, they'll do everything and anything that it takes to be able to get to the top of the summit, sometimes including abandoning other climbers. David Sharp, he became a casualty in March of 2006. Sharp was a 34-year-old engineer who had managed to reach the top of the summit, but on his way back down, he ran out of oxygen. And so as he lay there, he lay there dying, and as many as 40 climbers passed him by so they could continue to reach their goal of reaching the top. This goal that they wanted to reach, it was so important to them that they passed him by with this life-saving oxygen that they possessed. And unfortunately, David Sharp, he froze to death. Now, Ed Viestris, who he scaled 14 of the world's 8,000-meter peaks, he, he says, passing people who are dying is not uncommon. He says, unfortunately, there have been those who say, it's not my problem. I've spent all this money, and I'm going to make it to the summit. Now, this attitude, it has produced disgust in a lot of climbers. In fact, before Sir Edmund Hillary passed in 2008, he said this. He says, on my expedition, there was no way we were going to leave a man to die under a rock. Now, listen, I've never climbed Mount Everest. I don't know what that would take. But I have to say this, I think it would take a different type of mindset for me to be able to pass somebody who was dying and not try to stop and do something to help that person. You know, personally, I think anybody who could do that would have to have somewhat of a hard heart. Now, spiritually speaking, have you ever thought about what it takes to make a heart hard? I mean, what goes into doing this? And by a hard heart, obviously what I'm talking about is an attitude that sometimes we take on that makes us less teachable, less responsive, and less open to the things that the Lord would have us do. Sometimes it can be a real stubborn refusal to follow God. Like we know God wants us to do something, but we dig in our heels and we just flat out say no. And other times, I think a hardness of heart, it could come upon us in a really slow and subtle, unpronounced way. I mean, have you ever noticed how easy it is? 
If you get out of the habit of reading your Bible to pick it up and begin to read it again, or if we get out of the habit of coming to church, I don't know, maybe our schedules get really busy, but some, somehow, some way, they lighten up a little bit, and we have the time, and we know we need to get back to church, but it's difficult. It's difficult to get ourselves back. And once we finally do, we, we, we look around and we see people standing and singing and raising their hands and worshiping the Lord. And to be honest, for us, it's doing nothing. And so once again, we feel like we don't belong. I want to tell you this morning, you do belong. But sometimes it feels like we don't. Because what's happened is we've allowed this very subtle process to begin to take hold in our life where we've gotten out of this routine, this routine of hearing God's word, hearing his voice, and then responding to him. And now this whole church, Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship thing, it feels weird. It feels like something other than what is normal to us. And can I just suggest to you for a moment that the natural tendency of each and every one of our hearts is to become hard. Listen, if we don't keep up with the Word of God and fellowship and prayer and connecting with other believers, can I just suggest to you that by nature, we don't stay connected to God. By nature, we don't say, stay sensitive to Him and to His voice in our lives. So it's something that is, it's not something that's natural, it's actually supernatural. So if we're just going to allow the natural to take place, listen, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. What's going to happen is there's going to be this increasing level in each and every one of our lives of this hard-heartedness that can begin to develop. And when that does, eventually it brings with us some pretty serious consequences. Yeah, I bring all this up this morning because as we continue through our study through the book of Mark, the third and the fourth chapters are a reminder to us about the hardness of heart and what that hardness can produce. If you remember back to last week, Pastor Derek actually took us through the first six verses of Mark chapter 3. And what we learned is we saw these religious leaders who had just seen Jesus perform a miracle. And in the midst of that miracle being, you know, done, performed, we see that these religious leaders, they hardened their hearts towards Jesus. Remember, Jesus, he just heals this man with the shriveled hand. The religious leaders see it, and in that moment, they begin to plot how they might heal Jesus. This is a hardness of heart in their lives that is so severe that they could actually witness a miracle, that they could actually witness this healing take place, and then walk out the door and say, guess what? We have to kill this man. Talk about a hardness of heart. This is what we're seeing. And if you remember back to Mark 3, verse 5, it says that Jesus looked around him. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So if you ever want to know what might make Jesus angry and what grieves him, it's the hardness of our heart. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a wake-up call for me. And the reason it's a wake-up call is because I know there's been times in my own life where I've experienced a hardness of heart. As a believer, as a Christian for many years, 
I've experienced the hardening of my heart against God. I just have. And I'm positive that I've angered him. And I'm positive that what I've done has grieved him. I mean, there's times I know, I feel it, I I hear him. He's telling me to obey his commands. And in those moments, there are times where I know I've put my heels in the ground. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And there's been other times I know I've been doing things I've had no business doing. That God's tried to get into my mind that, Barry, this is bad for you. You need to stop. You need to stay away. But yet I've continued to do it anyway. That's a hardness of heart. I've done it. I've angered and I've grieved God and chances are every single one of us have done the same thing at one time or another. Now with all this being said this morning, I want to look at today's passage and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 3 verse 7. And it says this, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomaea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. I try to sometimes wrap my mind around this scene. I try to imagine it playing out as I read it. What this must have looked like. And here we see that Jesus actually tells his disciples, listen, have this rowboat ready. There's times in scripture that we see where the disciples probably actually would have been out near the shore, in a rowboat, just waiting, just in case Jesus called them. Because as these crowds began to gather, it would sometimes become so incredible and so insane what it must have been like for them to crowd around him. And he says, lest they crush me. So Jesus, he would hop in the boat, and they would pull about 20, 30 feet off the shore. And Jesus would do this to keep from being crushed, or at least to keep from being pushed back up into the water. And the cool thing about it is Jesus understood that this created this natural amphitheater type of thing. So as he spoke, it actually amplified his voice. We continue in verse 10. He says, for he had healed many so that all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So in verse 10, this word, this word that means pressed around, what it, what it really means is it means that this crowd was pushing forward to such a degree that they were falling all over him. So you can imagine the madness of all of this. This is a crazy setting where all these people, they're trying to get to Jesus, whether it was the sick or the lame or the family and friends of these people or people who are just curious. They're all pushing to get to the front just to have an opportunity to reach out and touch Jesus. They want to physically touch him. And if that's not enough, now you have these demon-possessed people throwing themselves at the ground saying that this has to be the Son of God. And Jesus looks at them and he says, shut up. Stop talking about it. Don't mention this anymore. Because what we have to understand is, why are these demons testifying and witnessing to Jesus? Why are they saying that, Jesus, you're the Son of God? Are they praising him? No. These demons are not doing Jesus any favors. 
What we have to understand is these religious leaders, what they're going to do is they're going to start to challenge the authority of Jesus. By what authority does Jesus perform these miracles? Listen, they don't challenge the fact that Jesus is performing miracles. No, they'd seen him doing it. So what they're going to do is they're going to start saying, listen, you're doing all of this, Jesus, by the power of Satan. That's why these demons are witnessing to you. That's how you have the power. That's how you have the ability. That's why you're doing this. And because of that, Jesus says, no, shut your mouth. Don't speak about this anymore. Because Jesus is going to address this in just a little bit. These demons aren't trying to help him. They're trying to ruin his ministry. They're trying to give some ammunition to the Pharisees to be able to attack Jesus. And now we get to the part where Jesus calls the 12. And sometimes we sit here and we say, you know, why in the midst of a chapter that's about people hardening their hearts against Jesus, do we get him calling the 12? Well, I think we start to see this contrast that begins to happen between those who had hardened their heart and those who have opened their heart and have a willing heart, a soft heart, to be able to be used by Jesus. And it says, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here we see Jesus appoint these 12 apostles. And there's been questions like, why does Jesus appoint 12? Well, a lot of biblical scholars believe because there were 12 tribes of Israel, he appoints these, these 12 apostles. So there's this correlation there. And he calls them an apostle. An apostle is just one who is sent forth with authority. So Jesus is saying, I'm sending you 12 men out with authority. You're going to be my representatives. And it, he tells them exactly why he's sending them out. He, he says, number one, so you can be with me, so we can have fellowship, so I can teach you and train you to go out and do these things. He also says um, it's because he's going to be sending them out to preach, and he's also going to give them the authority to drive out demons. Remember, this is fresh on Jesus' mind, so he's going to give these guys the authority to also do that as well. Now, this list of names and, and how it's presented to us, it, it kind of varies from gospel to gospel. And, and what we see here, there is some continuity. First and foremost, Peter is always listed first. And Judas, he's always listed last. And, and I found some interesting things. I just kind of was looking through this about these names and since I was interested, I thought you might be as well, but, you know, the, son, uh, the sons of thunder, you know, James and John, you know, we find out that they were pretty argumentative, they're pretty rough around the edges, but, you know, I kind of like to think, and I'm just guessing here, I don't know this is the reason, but do you remember there's a time in scripture where they enter this little Samaritan village, and the people are really rude to them, and so James and John are like, let's call down fire from heaven and just burn them up, you know, that'd be a cool way to get the name, you know, sons of thunder. Also, we learn about Simon the Zealot. 
And a zealot is somebody who was like this political extremist. Here's a guy who would have had no love for the Romans. In fact, he would have hated them. And what I find interesting, you know, Pastor Derek shared with us last week about Matthew, this tax collector who the Jewish people would have just thought was a traitor. There's no way, no way possible. You can be sure that no tax collector and no zealot would ever be able to work and to live together except through the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And as we talk about the hardness of heart this morning, I believe Judas chose to allow his heart to be hardened. I mean, think about it. Here was a man who had possibly spent two, maybe three years walking side by side with Jesus. And just like all the other disciples, Judas is a man who would have chose to leave everything else behind. He would have chose to leave his family. He would have chose to have left his position, his job. He leaves that in order to follow Jesus. But somewhere along the line, he begins to harden his heart because we start to see through several examples in Scripture that he begins to steal and he begins to lie. And it gets to the point where he's hardened his heart to this point where he's able to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I don't believe this happened to Judas all at once. Because at the Last Supper, the night he was betrayed, Jesus is sitting down with his disciples, and he tells them, listen, one of you guys are going to betray me. And it's not like every head in the room just snapped and looked at Judas. There's no indication that any of the other disciples even had a clue who Jesus was talking about. In fact, we even see Peter kind of wondering, oh, it's not me, is it? Listen, this wasn't something that was so obvious other disciples were like, you're the one. This would have had to have just been a slow thing because I really believe at the beginning, I believe his heart must have been to a point where Jesus wanted to use him, where maybe he was used. Nobody else calls him out here. Just something else I found kind of interesting, the name Iscariot. A lot of people think it comes from one of two meanings, one or two word origins. The first being that Judas himself came from a town called Kerioth. So Judas of Akarioth, Judas Iscariot. Or it could possibly be from the word Sakari. Now the Sakari, what they were, were they, they were these Jewish dagger assassins. All right, they were this, uh, this group of political assassins. And remember, Judas betrays Jesus to be assassinated. Whichever one it is, I don't know. I just thought it was cool. Thought I'd share. So why this group of men? Why these 12 guys? Like I said, I think this is showing us a complete contrast to the rest of this chapter. I believe it's because of the condition of their hearts. I believe they were willing. I believe they had open hearts for God to use them and build his kingdom through them. And even, yes, Judas at the beginning was being used by Jesus. As we continue along in verse 20, it says, Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out and they seized him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Man, can you imagine the workload that Jesus and his disciples must have had? Here they, don't even, they can't even sit down and eat a meal together because of this crowd. I don't know about you, but that would have drove me crazy. 
You know, don't interrupt my meal time, amen? <laughs> but that's what's going on here. It's become crazy, and even Jesus' family, they hear about what's going on, and they come and they become a part of this crowd. They want to go get Jesus. They want to put a stop to everything that he's doing because they believe Jesus has lost his mind. And what we need to understand is this. Listen, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, they went on and they had more kids. They were a normal family, normal couple, just like any other. And so they have more children and what we see in the word family and what we see in the word brothers, it means brothers and sisters. It's being used in that way. So we see Jesus' brothers and his sisters, we know and understand that they do not believe in this moment that he's the Messiah. I think this is another example of the hardness that can happen in somebody's heart. His own family couldn't even see the fact that he was the Messiah. Just through James' story, James the brother of Jesus, we know that he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after Jesus was resurrected. He had to put his eyes on the physically risen Christ to even understand that he was the Messiah he claimed to be the whole time. So even his own family doesn't believe. They thought he was crazy and they thought he was out of his mind. They also probably feared just a little bit that he was going mad. Listen, he had a hectic teaching schedule. He was constantly traveling. He was constantly teaching. He was constantly performing miracles. Man, listen, most likely they come up and it's embarrassment, it's fear, things that are happening that motivate them to confront Jesus. And they come up to the crowd and they say, listen, listen, we don't, we don't really think our brother's acting appropriately. So we've, we've come to get him. We think he's maybe just a little bit tired. Maybe he's hungry. He just needs to come home and rest a little bit. That's why we've come. Think about this for a second. The demons are against him. The religious leaders are against him. And now even his own family is against him, all because of the hardness of their hearts. Maybe this is why in Matthew 10.36, Jesus says, he says, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And I think this can even apply to us and be certainly true in our lives today if our families don't have the same commitment that we do to Jesus. Jesus knew what it was like to be divided in his own family. And chances are there's some of us sitting here today and we feel that same way. As it continued in verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what we see here are these religious leaders, they begin to call him Beelzebul. You know, some translations you might be following along in your own Bible, he's also referred to as Beelzebub. This was a Philistine name, meaning the Lord of the Flies, but it also was a name that was attributed to Satan. 
So basically they're saying it's by the prince of demons. It is by Satan himself that you are performing all these miracles. Listen, these, these Pharisees, remember, they're not questioning the miracles, but they're questioning the source. So I think Jesus, he says to them, listen, guys, I'd, I'd like to sit down with you guys. I'd like to have a little talk. I'd like to reasonably and, and logically think through what it is that you just accused me of. So what you Pharisees are saying to me is that it's Satan's M.O., to bind people, destroy their lives, and now I'm setting them free by the power of Satan? This means that Satan's in the business of binding and destroying and then setting free and giving life. Like, I, I don't get it. He's saying this means that Satan's agenda is completely at odds with itself. That's a house divided. Maybe to put it in simple terms... You can't cheer for the Bears and the Packers at the same time. <laughs> Listen, that's not right. It's not logical. You can't do it. It doesn't work. And that's what Jesus is trying to make clear. Guys, you're out of your mind. That doesn't make any sense. How is Satan doing all these things that he's totally against? And then we get to... Maybe a passage of scripture that's maybe challenged, maybe perplexed believers, maybe more than any other passage of scripture in this entire book. I think it's done it for a many great years, and truth be told, I think it's also caused a lot of fright, I guess you could say, within believers. And it's these right here, starting in verse uh, 28, it says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And this brings us to this eternal sin, or as maybe some biblical translations say, this unpardonable sin or this unforgivable sin. And what we need to remember this is extremely important. What we need to remember is that these words have been given to us in the context of a chapter that is all about the hardness of heart. Remember, Mark 3, it begins with these Pharisees who watch Jesus heal this man with a shriveled hand, and then they go out and they say, we have to kill this man. And then we read about what happened with his family, how his own family thought he was crazy and out of his mind. And now here we have these religious leaders who had witnessed a miracle of Jesus casting out demons, but now they're saying it's only because Jesus is using the power of Satan. Now the level of the hardness of heart that is going on here is absolutely insane. Listen, this ought to get our attention. This should be something that we each look at because I want you to understand this is what can happen when the hardness of heart goes so far that it can no longer be reached by the Word of God. In other words, there's no turning back. And clearly, Jesus wants these religious leaders to know that they're treading on extremely dangerous ground here. These leaders, they become so jealous of Jesus 
They're jealous of these number of people, this massive crowd that has begun to follow him everywhere he goes. They're jealous of his teachings. They're so afraid that Jesus is going to take their place as the religious leader of these people. They think that he's going to cause some kind of problems in their religious systems. I truly believe they know what they're saying is not even close to the truth. But they would rather claim this lie that Jesus is using the power of Satan to perform these miracles than admit that they're wrong, than admit that their hearts are hard. So they say something that they know isn't true about Jesus so that the crowds will not believe that he is the Messiah and so that they will no longer follow him. And so we get into this passage that talks about what this eternal sin is, this impardonable sin, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the answer is given to us in verse 30, and all it is is saying that the, these spirits that Jesus is performing these miracles by are unclean spirits. That's it. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's first of all witnessing the power of God being displayed through the person of Jesus Christ and then crediting that power to the work of the enemy for the purpose of deception and confusion. Dr. Bob Butley, he says, the impardonable sin is the rejection of the truth in the presence of great light. We're not talking about a one-time deed. We are talking about a lifestyle that develops to the point where they can't tell good from evil and attributes light to darkness, therefore is so blind that they will not and cannot see. It is impossible to commit the unpardonable sin and have a desire to know and follow God. This is the willful rejection of truth in the presence of great knowledge. It is saying that the Holy Spirit is not the revealer of truth, and that God's truth is really darkness. And when you get to that place, Jesus is saying there's no hope. You know, I think we can see it today when man, they turn their heart from God, and they turn from the obvious truth of his word. And I think the reason that this is so unforgivable is because it's the Holy Spirit that leads us to repentance. In John 16, 8, Jesus, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So he's saying that the Holy Spirit is what convicts us of our sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And if a person has a heart that is too hard, is not responsive to the Spirit, is not in tune to the Spirit. They will never be convicted of the sin in their life. And I think we see a great example of this play out in the book of Acts chapter 7. And what we see here is a follower of Jesus, somebody who's out preaching the word, a guy by the name of Stephen, who's out telling truth after truth after truth about who Jesus is and how he was the Messiah and how he had died and how he had risen. And it's through him that we find um, our salvation. And as he's preaching this, these leaders are getting angrier and angrier at every word he says. They become so angry that they begin to pick up rocks and they begin to throw these rocks at him to the point where they stone him to death. And one of the last things that Stephen says that really makes this group of leaders angry can be found in Acts 7 verse 51 and it says this, 
He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You stiff-necked people, this is a biblical term that's referring to the hardness of their hearts. And can I just say this right now to hopefully put some of your minds at ease? Because sometimes when we read through this and we're talking about an unpardonable sin, we may start to become just a little bit concerned that maybe we blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And can I just say, if you're worried about it, you haven't. And, and I, I mean, for real, I, I mean that. Um, listen, because this level of concern, like if you're concerned right now, it means that the Holy Spirit's still working on your heart. You know, people who've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, I'll just be honest, they don't care. They don't care what they've done. They don't care that their, you know, eternity may be in jeopardy. And I think that's why it becomes unforgivable, because since they're not concerned about it, since the Holy Spirit isn't working, they are not seeking repentance. If you can say right now that, listen, Jesus, I am a sinner, and I need you in my life, that's proof positive that you still have the Holy Spirit working in you. Like I shared earlier, I know there's been times in my life that I've resisted the Holy Spirit, that I've resisted God's calling in my life, and I know every single person in here has to. But I want us to understand it doesn't go unbroken. What I mean by that is it isn't a continual thing. I haven't continually not listened to the Spirit, no, because eventually the Holy Spirit softens my heart and convicts me to the point where I ask for forgiveness, where I soften my heart, where I actually follow and do what God's called me to do. Listen, what Jesus does is he forgives us, right? And it's the Holy Spirit that leads us to seek that forgiveness. So if you're constantly seeking forgiveness, you haven't hardened your heart to the point where you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, is my, he is my brother and sister and mother. So what we see here is that Jesus is not going to allow his family, no matter how much he loves them, to get in the way of his mission. To get in the way of what his father has called them to do. And here's a hard truth for many of us. It's oftentimes the people that we love the most that so often get in the way of our service and our growth towards Christ. But I want to give you some encouragement today because I know there are some of you where your home situation and your family's faith may not be yours. So I want you to know is this. If church is done right, the body of believers can become even closer than our blood relatives. If you're a Christian today, you haven't just been born again as a child of God. You've been born again into a family of believers. Jesus said, listen, you want to see my family? Look around. Because there's, they, they are those who want to know God. 
There are the people who are doing his will. This is my family. And listen, we are family in this room this morning. Now, before we wrap up very quickly, I just want to talk a little bit about Mark chapter 4. And listen, we, we don't have any time left almost to look into it. So I want to encourage you, read the first 34 verses. What you're going to be doing is you're going to be reading through a set of parables, quite, quite about four or five of them. Four in total, actually. I also want to recommend that you watch the videos by Francis Chan that some of our small groups, our connection groups are watching and then discussing. I know even as a student ministry, we're watching these on Sunday nights and discussing them with our students. But you can also just go to the study guide, get the link there and watch it. And what you're going to see is that Jesus teaches these parables of what we call the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp on the stand, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And it's, it's important that we're careful when we actually get into parables and we, we know how to read them because a lot of times we try to make way too much out of them. So let me just say this. First of all, when it comes to looking at a parable, look at everything that's been presented around it. Look at the chapter leading into it. Look at the parables and the text around it because the larger body of, of the text is going to help us understand what the parable is about. The next thing is, just don't try to build your doctrine on a parable. Why? Because there can be a lot of possible interpretations. And finally, again, look for the major truth that Jesus is trying to convey. So once again, as we've looked at Mark 3 and even Mark 4, what it's talking about is it's addressing the hardness of heart. And that's important that we understand that as we begin to read these parables, that it's about the hardness of heart. So beginning, you know, with the parable of the sower, what you see is, Jesus tells a story about this farmer who begins to spread this seed and it falls on four different types of ground. The first, it falls on the path, the hard path. It doesn't go in. The birds come along and they, they take it away. They eat it. In the next set of it, it falls on the rocky ground and it's got shallow soil. So it, it sinks in and it begins to grow really quickly, but it has such shallow roots that nothing takes hold. So when the hot sun hits it, it said it scorches it and it kills it. The next bit of seed, it falls along the thorns, and it says, as the plants begin to, throw, to grow, so do the thorns, and the thorns, it choke out the healthy plant. And finally, it says that there's some seed that reaches the good soil, and it takes root, and it produces 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown. So Jesus tells these, this story, and the disciples were confused by it. In fact, after everybody's left, the disciples go to Jesus, and they say when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked about the parables, and he said to them, to you um, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." I love what the disciples do here because they go to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, we don't understand, but we want to. Jesus, explain this to us. I want to understand the scripture. I want to humble myself. I want to come to you and say, Lord, without you, there is no way I will understand. So I come to you that I might learn. The truth is, any one of those people that were in that crowd could have walked up to Jesus and said, explain this to us. But many of them, it says they were confused, and they just went away. I don't understand the thing this guy's talking about. I'm going home. And Jesus is just there. 
Listen, can I just say this to you? Most people who don't get it don't want to get it. They just don't want to take the time to put in that it takes to get it. Their heart isn't in it. Their heart isn't soft to be able to hear Jesus' word. And so Jesus explains everything to them. And again, this is why I want you to read because I don't have time to read it. But the primary point of this parable is to encourage people to hear the word of God, accept it, and then let it bear fruit in their lives. So my question is, do you hear the word of God and are you allowing it to produce fruit in your life? This parable is about the condition of our spiritual heart. Can the word of God find a place to get in and get rooted or not? And I think there's unfortunately a lot of hearts out there that are so hard that there's no place for the word of God to actually creep in and begin to make a difference. This is what the word of God is all about. How can it creep in? And this says this, it says, I think three things interfere that you'll learn as you read this parable. First, there's satanic opposition. I think there's sometimes outside persecution that we might face or outside peer pressure. And there's also the attraction of what the world has to offer. That's what got Judas, those 30 pieces of silver. So what is important in these parables is that we see that God's word can produce a fruitful life. And that brings us to our BCC big idea this morning, and it's this. Living life with a fruitful purpose is determined by the condition of your heart. Let me say that again. Living life with a fruitful purpose is determined by the condition of your heart. Now, as I close this morning, I want to take us back to the beginning. The story I shared about Mount Everest, because it still blows my mind to read about the number of dead bodies that remain along the path as people make their way to the top of Mount Everest. David Sharp, who we talked about, his body is actually still out on Mount Everest. It's been removed from sight, but it is still just out there on the, the mountain. And I think what kind of blows my mind more than anything is the fact that he had just ran out of oxygen. And the truth of the matter is, these 40 people that passed him, they all had oxygen tanks. And any one of those 40 people could have stopped and allowed him to share oxygen as they made their way back down the hill. But what that would have meant is that the person who shared would have had to say, I'm done. I can't go to the top. So I'm going to have to forfeit my trip. I'm going to have to forfeit my money. I'm going to have to forfeit my goals and my dreams and my plans to become one of the few people that have ever reached the top of this peak. That's what would have happened because there's a lot more to this story that I'm sharing. A lot of people just stopped and talked to him and determined that he wasn't worth saving. And sadly, I think this is how some of us go through life. We have our dreams. We have our hopes. We have the things that we want to accomplish. And I think intentionally or unintentionally, we've allowed our hearts to become hardened to the point where we don't see the world around us. We're not hearing the word of God and we're not letting the Holy Spirit lead. And on a daily basis, we're passing by people who are dying a spiritual death. They need somebody to stop and to give them oxygen or the life-saving breath of God's word. You know, if we're a disciple, if we're a true follower of Christ, our lives should be productive and our lives should be bearing fruit. Do our hearts need to be softened by this reality? Do our hearts need to be softened to the gospel? Are we producing fruit 
because living a life with a fruitful purpose is determined by the condition of our heart. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And I thank you for your word, God, and I thank you that we can read your word and see the consequence of having a hard heart, but we can also see the consequence of having a soft heart and allowing your word to penetrate us. God, how you use these 12 men to build your kingdom and how you want to continue to do that through us, but it takes us having a heart that's soft enough to be penetrated by your word and by the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Father, I ask for forgiveness where I have ignored the Spirit, and I thank you for your grace and your mercy for giving me when I do. God, I just pray for a softness of heart upon all of us to where we would be fruitful with the things you've given us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.